Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody from wherever you're connecting. Welcome to this virtual policy seminar on local versus global, the role of trade in building food system resilience. The focus of this seminar is on how food supply chains have been adjusting to COVID-19 and what it may mean for the future of food systems. Well, food supply chains have shown a fair degree of resilience since the outbreak of COVID-19. Many countries have faced severe disruptions in supply chains and have to, had to respond to uh, large shifts in food demand. Some countries have responded with protectionist measures in the form of export bans on key staple foods aimed to protect domestic consumers while depriving those abroad. While only a few countries resorted to such measures, it did stir a discussion and created controversy regarding whether food systems uh, strongly connected with global value chains are not more vulnerable to disruptions than more localized food systems. Conversely, others point out that open access to global food markets provide access to more diversified food supplies and creates greater resilience to food of food systems. This discussion has researched with COVID-19, but has deeper roots in beliefs that local food systems with shorter supply chains could be more sustainable and more resilient than global ones with long and much longer supply chains. Calls for circular economy approaches for sustainable food systems often also promote more localized solutions. Today, we will take on these fundamental questions of how best to structure our food supply chains with several prominent policymakers, practitioners from the private sector, and experts from international organizations and the research community. I will ask them to give us their perspectives on whether it's better for food system resilience and sustainability to prioritize the strengthening of localized supply chains or to seek deeper integration in global markets. At today's policy seminar, we will proceed as follows. We have interventions from five panelists, starting with uh, Mr. Guido Land here, the Deputy Vice Minister of Agriculture of the Netherlands, and who will speak on behalf of Minister Schouten to introduce the Netherlands approach to a circular economy for agriculture and the food sector and what this means for the role of international trade. It will then be followed by perspectives from the private sector given by respectively uh, Robert de Vrede, the executive vice president of Global Foods of Unilever, and Jeroen Elvers, the corporate director of dairy development and milk stream of Friesland Campina, a large international uh, dairy uh, company. And subsequently, we'll hear from Ms. Marion Janssen, the director of trade and agriculture at the OECD and Maximo Torero, the chief economist of the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. After that, we will take questions from you, the audience, and also give the opportunity to the panelists to react to each other. IFPRI's Director General, Jo Swinnen, will then give his closing remarks. To raise a comment or question, please do so at any point during the seminar. But I would like to remind you uh, all watching online that you can submit your brief questions on ifpre.org, on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using hashtag askifpre. So 
without further ado, let's uh, start our discussion and uh, start with uh, Mr. Guido Lantier, as I mentioned, who's the Deputy Vice Minister of the Minister of Agriculture in the Netherlands. Mr. Lantier, in March 2020, um, Agriculture Minister of the Netherlands, Carola Schouten, posted an invited blog post on IFPRI's uh, website. She made a strong plea for a circular economy approach in transforming Dutch agriculture. She wrote that, and I quote, circular agriculture aims to minimize inputs of concentrated feed and chemical fertilizer, as well as outputs of harmful substances and waste. Residual products from one chain uh, are feedstocks for another. We try to close the loop as locally as possible within a company, at the local level, within the Netherlands or across national borders. But the motto is, do it locally if possible and regionally or internationally if needed, end of quote. So Mr. Lantier, thinking post COVID-19, can you explain how we should interpret this approach in practice, knowing that the Netherlands is the second largest exporter of agricultural products in the world? Does the circular economy approach mean that Dutch agriculture will now first focus on closing the production cycle locally first before considering what it means for cross-border trade. Over to you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Rob. And good morning, what you said. Good morning, good afternoon, and good uh, good evening. Uh, thank you for giving me the floor. Uh, what you're mentioning is that the Netherlands is the second exporter uh, in the world. And was, uh, I would like to say that there's never been uh, a policy goal. Uh, it is probably more an outcome than a policy goal. Uh, you know, one of the key factors of, of this uh, outcome uh, is that we are a very far, fairly small country uh, with uh, scarce uh, resources like, like land. And, <clears throat> and so uh, we have to learn to innovate. And that is also the outcome is that we have an innovative uh, agriculture sector and it means also that what it was a policy is that we uh, we focused on cooperation between academia the industry and the government and we have an open um, <clears throat> uh, trade oriented uh, population in uh, the netherlands so these are the backgrounds of a fairly uh, successful agriculture sector and our food production is incredible in, uh, intense but also incredible efficient and it is good enough that we can feed our own population, but it's also uh, good enough. Well, we also play an active role in feeding the world, which was described in National Geographic a couple of years ago. And that was also because of our technology. For instance, also the greenhouse uh, horticulture, and uh, which was also mentioned, and we are very happy with all these uh, international attention. It was mentioned by the, the, the Netflix movie of David Edinburgh, uh, Life uh, on Our Planet. <clears throat> so we are quite successful and uh, we are focused with our agriculture uh, uh, sector uh, abroad. So we focus internationally. So, but our success has also a downside. Uh, you see in the Netherlands that like many other countries that our biodiversity is declining, our soils are uh, degrading and we need to cut our CO2 emissions. 
So the burden of our production system and natural environment is too heavy. So uh, to, to keep uh, Netherlands as pleasant to live in, uh, we have to do uh, uh, things. And also we are committed to the UN SDGs and, and also uh, the biological the Convention on Biological uh, Diversity and things like that. So that was a little bit the background that we had to find new ways to do our agriculture in uh, the Netherlands. And what you mentioned that uh, two years ago, a letter to Parliament was sent about the background and the goals of the circular agriculture or the closed loop uh, agriculture. Basically, we are working towards a system where residual flows are uh, reused as much as, as possible, and the use of new uh, raw new re resources kept to a minimum. So we have chosen a new way of agriculture. And sometimes it's also very difficult because sometimes we are no man's uh, land. And sometimes also we have tough discussions with uh, the population, especially also the, the farmers in, in our country. But our uh, minister is dedicated to uh, we, this cabinet is dedicated to find a way to a sustainable uh, agriculture. So we focus now also a lot on research and on pilots. Uh, we have many uh, research projects for getting having healthy soils, sustainable production uh, with less use of chemical pesticides and focus on more innovation. For instance, the CRISPR-Cas to get resilient uh, seed. Uh, uh, production. So as part of the circular uh, agriculture is also closing the loops uh, to get it more uh, locally. And yes, uh, local food and local uh, local uh, loops uh, uh, is, is, is getting uh, is important part of the circular uh, agriculture. Local food can help. It's good for sustainability. It's good also for the community and to, 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 to have it in the, in the countryside. It's good also to support your local farmer, local shop. shop. And these are really important things in, um, in, 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 in the countryside and especially in, uh, in the, the villages. And we have seen uh, local foods getting more popular in the COVID, these times of COVID. Uh, we think that right now the local food and the Netherlands, it's about uh, regional food uh, consumption is about 5% of all uh, consumption. And we think that there's a potential to get to more to 20%. So that means 20%, uh, if you say, is it or, or local food or international food? No, it's and and and. So we don't think it's uh, versus, but we think it's and and and. Because if you see right now, 75% of our production is exported and 70 75% of our of the land which has been used for dutch food consumption is located abroad so that means that local food is not enough to feed well probably to feed our uh, country but not enough to feed also and to fulfill the the challenges with the growing world population so we think that local food uh, uh, production in consumption is really important and that is an important part of our uh, policy uh, focus but it is not enough and it means that uh, we will be still open for international trade that's where we are strong at 
uh, our industry, and we have some representatives uh, also of the industry which are international uh, oriented. And so we will be uh, international also in the in the future. But it also means that we try to change uh, international trade, what is possible. Uh, of course, uh, the focus is also, we find also a responsibility of the Dutch government and the Dutch industry to, <clears throat> to find ways to operate more sustainably. And we think with our technology, we can help uh, to feed uh, uh, the population also abroad, especially in the emerging uh, markets, because we export also our technology. And by exporting our technology, we can play a role also in uh, the local uh, 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 closing the local loops in other countries with our technology. For instance, also with uh, the environmental controlled horticulture, which we are exporting uh, all over the world. And there are uh, nice examples in Mexico, uh, the US, uh, Saudi Arabia, Japan, Japan, and so on. So we feel there also a responsibility. To change it, um, we think, uh, but maybe first one thing, very important international uh, uh, trade is that we keep the rule-based trade and, and, and uh, worldwide. And we see in the COVID times that there is a trend towards more uh, national orientation and more protection measures. And we don't think that is good. We had to keep open the, the global rule-based uh, system and I think that within the European uh, Union, we were very pleased with the so-called green lanes, which are important to export and import the, uh, uh, the, the food. Another way to, to change international trade is within the European Union. We are very active in, uh, in a new common agriculture policy and also with the farm to fork. And this way we change the regulatory uh, framework and that is important also to have an ambition uh, in Europe. We can be an example of the, for the rest of the world and it's for us also important to create a level playing field. So <clears throat> um, just to, to, to sum up, uh, I think that uh, local food production and closing the production uh, cycle uh, locally is very important, is one of the pillars in our circular uh, agriculture policy, but we have to keep uh, the, the market open uh, because the Netherlands uh, can play an active role in food security worldwide, but we have also an ambition and the will to change and to get international trade more sustainable. Finally, it's also that I would like to say that the Dutch government is also playing an active role, uh, what I mentioned in the emerging countries, and we collaborate there with the private sector of the Netherlands, but also locally. And we have a national, a Netherlands food partnership and CDNL, where we can play an active role in local, uh, creating a local, strong local food system everywhere in the world. Thank you very much, uh, Rob. Uh, thank you, Guido. That was um, uh, very clear and to the point and uh, very clear that uh, um, you want to preserve uh, the importance of trade and uh, the export role of the Netherlands in uh, in food uh, systems, uh, but 
uh, you see a need to rebalance that a little bit uh, to enhance the size of the local uh, markets and local provisioning uh, in the Netherlands. While at the same time, uh, not just looking at trade, but also at innovation and exporting technology uh, to other countries in order to uh, strengthen uh, local supply chains uh, in other places. So thank you very much uh, for that uh, first introduction and uh, setting the stage. Uh, let me now turn to Robert de Vrede, who's the Executive Vice President for Global Foods at Unilever. Uh, Robert, uh, Unilever gives uh, high priority to making its business operations meet sustainability objectives. How does a company like Unilever that for most manages global value chains perceive a circular economy approach? Is that approach central to all of Unilever's business strategy? And thinking post-COVID-19, do you see provisioning through local supply chains becoming more important, including for Unilever, or is food system resilience and circularity, circularity better served with stronger and more integrated uh, global supply chains? Over to you. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Good questions. Let me try to go, uh, go through them. I think the reality is we're facing multiple crises today. Yeah? From the COVID pandemic that is gripping our society so visibly today, to also the warming of our planet and the loss of nature, to even the growing inequality that our capitalist system manifests. These are multiple existential, but also connected crises. And the urgency is clear. Many experts say we have only 10 years to get our act together. And that's mainly reasoning from a climate change perspective. Inequality might even hold us down faster when you're looking at the latest developments in some parts of the world. These issues are interconnected and this is very visible in the current pandemic. The evidence that the loss of nature and driving humans closer to wildlife is leading to an increase in diseases like COVID. Yet we've got an opportunity to tackle these crises together. The way to deal with one of them is by dealing with all of them, transforming to a resilient, low carbon, more inclusive and circular economy. And we believe that only by doing it all will we be able to get the support, the traction and the scale that is so needed. A circular economy is probably the only solution to decouple economic growth, which is intrinsic to our human behavior and what we're trying to pursue, to decouple that from resource depletion and the environmental impact. But it can also help to drive a more resilient and more powerful economy. We believe we need to shift with three things, shift more towards circular feedstocks, shift more towards regenerative agriculture and closing the loops on plastics. Now, it might not be on everybody's awareness when you're looking into the public debate at the moment, but 30% of our greenhouse gas emissions come from agriculture and even 70% of the freshwater use consumption. So let's dive a bit deeper in the, in the regenerative agriculture part. In Unilever, we use a Unilever Sustainable Agricultural Code that has helped us to shift more towards agricultural sourcing over the last 10 years. But we need to go further and faster based on science that we see from the current crises. A circular approach needs to fuel the solution, focusing on how the biosphere can naturally regenerate so we can come to a regenerative agricultural system. Not growing the same crop in the same place season on season, but designing it with diversity of crops and locations so that we give the soil and nature the time to restore. Also, by changing the demand of what we eat. Today, we're consuming only nine crops for 75% of our food. 
And we need a much more diverse, much more plant-based diet in order to come to that sustainable food system. Uh, and this will not only build more resilient systems, um, it will help us to better deal the volatility that the current environment gives us. On your point on global versus local, we are a believer of globally connected systems. But make no mistake, every global system is built by local elements, local connections. Local smallholder farmers that get access to global marketplace, that are able to produce against fair wages, but then also getting the knowledge and the access to drive the right sustainable impact. A well-connected local system into global value chains is the most robust way to secure food resilience, but also to ensure that we get enough affordable and sustainable food for all 8 billion of us. And finally, innovation and partnerships are key to this. To help consumers to eat more diverse, more plant-based and increase our yields while we become regenerative and sustainable, we have to work together and we have to use and embrace science and data. And make no mistake, this sounds like we're adding costs all over the system. There is good business in doing so. It's estimated that transforming the food system towards a more resilient food system, towards a more sustainable food system, can create 8 million jobs and add an additional 2 trillion euros in productive growth by 2030. There is no time to waste. We need to accelerate. I know we might not have all the answers for the final equation, but I believe there's enough clarity to further get going and to accelerate. And you know, we're looking very much forward to doing so and by partnering with, with you know, various groups, whether it's NGOs, other multinationals, local farmers, in order to get the job done. Thanks, Rob. <clears throat> Thanks, uh, Robert. That's a very clear plea for um, sustainability, but also doing so by uh, making sure local and global value chains are uh, well connected. And it's, it's very interesting to see a big company like uh, Unilever uh, playing for this in, in this direction. And uh, let's see how other companies uh, look at this. So, so let me turn to uh, Jeroen Elvers, who is the Corporate Director of Dairy Development and Milkstream at Friesland Campina. Uh, Friesland Campina is one of the world's largest uh, dairy companies, but remains rooted in a cooperative business model linking livestock farmers to dairy processing and distribution activity, uh, largely through local supply chains. Um, you do that in Europe as much as around the world. Moving forward, do you see local supply chains and market development as a key for building more resilient food systems? Or do you see a more hybrid model where local supply chains are strengthened in their connection with global supply chains as managed currently by Friesland Campina? In all of this, is it technically and economically feasible for a dairy business to operate under the concept of a fully circular e economy? Jeroen, Jeroen, you have the floor. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. First of all, thank you for inviting us for, uh, for this important uh, um, and let me um, also build on uh, some of the developments and trends that we see in relation to the pandemic uh, that we're in, and that was mentioned a couple of times. So we see indeed that more and more countries are accelerating on their efforts for backward integration, uh, building a more self-sufficient uh, feed chain. And the question is, if that's truly circular, to be honest, I will get back to that later. But also, uh, we see that uh, we have become very vulnerable in relation to the sourcing of, for example, feed in relation to, uh, to the cattle or dairy industry, but also in relation to materials. If you see some products 
that uh, have uh, six different uh, items in it uh, that come from six different countries uh, across the world. Uh, but also transport has become uh, uh, quite a significant uh, topic uh, that we have learned from uh, at this moment. If you look to self-sufficiency uh, and backward integration in food, uh, or in our case uh, in dairy, uh, then the question is what is truly being self-sufficient? If you build, for example, large-scale farms, uh, an example is China, uh, and there we see indeed uh, a huge increase in local produced uh, dairy, but then you become extremely vulnerable of the import of feed for your dairy cows. And we saw that in COVID times that actually that became an issue. Are you then truly self-sufficient? And is that the right definition of circular? So also building on what Mr. Land here and Mr. Davis said is that uh, what we truly believe in is in what we call the golden triangle. So a very strong partnership, cooperation between the knowledge centers and uh, the government, the public sector and private companies. We see very good, uh, the Netherlands is a good example, but also to be honest, China, but also countries uh, like Pakistan. Uh, we operate in Pakistan. Not everybody knows, but actually uh, our business there is based on 100% local sourced produced uh, dairy. Uh, uh, but there are also other examples, also building on what Mr. De Vrede says, to be honest, is that, yes, we're, we have to deal with the pandemic at the moment, uh, hopefully, uh, uh, just at the moment. And yes, we have, as mankind, a huge challenge on, uh, on, on our environment, our responsibility for the environment. But also we have a very fast growing world population uh, that needs food. Uh, and that is why basically uh, as part of our uh, nourishing a better planet strategy, we basically invest uh, in our global dairy development programs. And that's in, 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 in eight countries uh, that we operate is there we source uh, dairy locally and there we support smallholders, uh, small dairy farms, family farms, uh, helping them, supporting them, and with investments on uh, producing good quality dairy uh, to help them to improve their, um, their productivity. And yes, there we pay a fair price and we, and we basically we collect that milk, we pro process that milk, and actually we bring that uh, to the market. So it's a full uh, dairy value chain in this case, in those, uh, in those countries. And that helps on a lot of different topics. Uh, in this case, uh, we help farmers uh, with a better income. Uh, this creates uh, prosperity, but also uh, a very important social stability. If you look to uh, countries like, uh, like Nigeria, a huge uh, population uh, growing fast uh, from origin, a very strong agricultural sector. Uh, and there, uh, for us, it's very important to support uh, these uh, local farmers, these communities in uh, developing a very strong, sustainable uh, dairy value chain. At the same time, the population there is growing very fast. The population and uh, the need for uh, dairy with a high nutritional uh, value is growing faster 
than uh, the production that is being developed in those type of countries. So you see it's a constant balancing. So if you talk about circular, we talk about circular unless. Uh, we constantly look to the optimal situation depending on the circumstances in a certain country. Uh, and that could be on climate, uh, that could be uh, on the availability of infrastructure, uh, that could be on the availability of, uh, of knowledge. And depending on these specific needs uh, and availabilities, we depend on how we uh, uh, build uh, a strong dairy value chain in those, uh, in those uh, countries with three important pillars, uh, energy and climate, biodiversity, uh, and animal health uh, and welfare. These are very, three very uh, important uh, pillars uh, that we see for building a sustainable and what we call a circular-based uh, dairy value chain. So that's very short in summary, uh, an answer to your, uh, to your question, uh, Rob. Uh, thanks, uh, Jeroen. Um, so I think, I guess, a good example of how an international company um, uh, can uh, focus also on strengthening local supply chains. And uh, so like your um, concept of circularity, which may not be entirely circular, um, if um, I take your last comment on that, it's, it's unless uh, the conditions uh, may not fully give it to, to close the, the loop uh, entirely. Uh, but it's interesting to see how um, uh, here, in this case, um, a global company uh, works to uh, strengthen uh, local supply chains um, uh, as another way of uh, looking at how to balance global versus local. Um, before I move to the next speaker, let me remind all of you uh, watching online that you can submit your questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or whatever platform you're using or by using um, hashtag on Twitter, um, hashtag askifpre. Ask um, so please uh, submit your questions as we move forward with the panel so we can take them on board in the final part of this uh, seminar. Um, so let me now turn to Marion uh, Janssen, the Director of Trade and Agriculture Directorate at the uh, OECD. Uh, Marion, the OECD, together with the World Trade Organization and other international organizations, have been quite active in making sure that agricultural trade channels were kept open and countries refrained from imposing trade restrictions in response to COVID-19. At the OECD, I've also done quite a bit of analysis of global agri-food value chains and how trade and agriculture policies should promote greater domestic value-added generation through participation of farmers and other food sector actors in global value chains. This is a correct summary of the OECD's perspective that especially for developing countries, the development of domestic agri-food supply chains is well served through integration of global in, into global uh, value chains. If so, what conditions need to be put in place uh, uh, for a fair value added sharing in those connected supply chains? Marion, you have the floor. Thank you, uh, Rob. And thank you very much for inviting uh, me to participate in this uh, seminar. Um, allow me to, to start uh, by making reference to this COVID-19 uh, crisis 
and to your first um, um, comment that we have been very active in trying to ensure that markets remain stable and remain open. And I think I would like to do this because I think we have seen in agricultural markets a great and very positive example of how policymakers were able to build back better after a crisis. Uh, some of you may remember that the 2008-2009 crisis at some stage had the name food, fuel and financial crisis. The food was there because in that period we saw so huge fluctuations in, in prices, markets being uh, closed, export restrictions being um, introduced, and there was an, a, a real concern about access to food for importing countries. In this crisis, this big turbulence has largely been avoided. And that was, uh, we believe, to a large extent because the G20 asked um, governments asked international organizations to work on uh, better systems of information on agricultural markets. We have worked with FAO under the lead of FAO actually on something called the agricultural market information system. And when markets started to panic during the COVID crisis, when some countries started to introduce export restrictions, we were able to say, please calm down, don't panic. Harvests have been good. There is enough food available stay calm, and that very much contributed, we believe, to keeping markets stable and to avoid a lot of what we were calling a food crisis 10 years ago. So policymakers are able um, to learn, and let's hope we will use this also to build back better after this COVID-19 crisis. This crisis will not leave us um, unaffected. We have been doing some work at the OECD to assess how COVID-19 will affect um, food systems, and I'm saying this because we look nowadays, when we look at food systems, at three aspects together. And I'm, I'm, I'm coming back to a point Rob made, Robert made before. We do not only look at how does a policy, or in this case, a crisis affect incomes of farmers. We also look at how does it affect access to food, nutrition, that's a social aspect, and how does it affect the environment. And what we expect is that this crisis very much through its effect on um, bringing GDP down, on the uh, general effect on, um, on, on reducing economic activities, it will affect revenues of farmers quite significantly in the short and medium term. We are thinking of negative, looking at negative effects of 8 to 10 percent. It will have an effect on access to food. Uh, nutrition intake will go down by 1 to 1.4%, in particular in developing countries. You asked about those countries. On the positive side, less agricultural activity, and there I'm coming back to points made before. In this case, has a good uh, repercussions on CO2 emissions. We see less damage to the environment. So we are looking increasingly at how these three areas, um, economic, social and sustainably um, interact. And we are notably doing this in a publication we will launch on January 27 that looks at better policies for food systems. Um, now, value chains uh, have continued to function during this crisis. Um, nevertheless, the crisis will have a negative effect. As you said, we're having a discussion now of whether value chains have been a problem or whether it's better to, is, are we more resilient if we are more local? Our work tells us, our um, assessment simulations tell us that going fully local is definitely not an answer. Uh, we have been doing simulations on whether going onshoring everything uh, would make you better off and less vulnerable. The opposite is the case. 
but nobody will be surprised about this. We heard also Guido Lanter say, maybe we go a bit more local, but we will stay open and, um, and more local. In particular, small countries, if you're thinking about reshoring everything, becoming fully in, um, um, independent, it's, it's impossible, but it makes you very, very vulnerable. Every local shock, think of a bad harvest in one year, makes access to food for your entire population a big problem. So we would definitely expect that um, we will always be thinking of systems that are remain open, that remain open for trade, for exports and imports in order for not to be in totally vulnerable, exposed to shock and shocks and in order to be resilient. Um, does global integration in global value chains help for developing countries or is it better to be a direct exporter? There are two advantages we are seeing from being part of value chains. First, during a crisis like this, it's often a structure within value chains that is most resilient. And private sector actors definitely learned also from the 2008-2009 crisis. They have strengthened their risk management systems and we have seen value chains being pretty resilient during this crisis. Smallholders, suppliers into value chains can benefit from this. Also very important for agricultural trade, meeting standards and regulations of your external partners, of your partner countries, often lead firms in a value chain help small suppliers with this. Bypassing information on, but sometimes also by supporting them financially. So being part of a global international value chain is a good thing. Last but not least, and I will finish with this, you asked about fairness. Is being part of a global value chain fair? Um, how fair it is will very much depend on how the value chain functions and what policies are in place in different parts of the chain. Um, our membership mainly consists of industrialized countries. We are advising our countries in order to help yourself, help uh, agriculture, but also maintain a level playing field, move away from price support, move away from support directed to outputs, go towards more R&D, more research, more education, and towards more rural infrastructure. I believe that this is not only good for our members, but will also make trade fairer for developing countries who participate in global value chains. I will leave it here, and I thank you. Uh, thank you so much, um, uh, uh, Marion. That's a very clear perspective of basically you have to, um, as uh, also others have said, uh, balance, find a proper balance between um, uh, uh, locals, have strong local supply chains, but uh, we cannot do it without um, good international trade rules and have an important role for trade. Uh, and then seek how we can uh, make sure to steer that in sustainable direction. So I think well, we seem to have quite a bit of uh, uh, agreement on, on those points across the various uh, presentations, so much less um, controversy perhaps, but maybe the big question is how we should seek that uh, balance. Um, let me move to um, our final panelist, uh, but not the least one, uh, Maximo Torero, the chief economist at the Food and Agriculture Organization, um, basically addressed the same question, but um, uh, Maximo, FAO has always stressed the importance of international trade for food stability, resilience, and food security, and even more so in response to COVID-19. At the same time, 
FAOS also supports the idea of a circular and solidarity economy that prioritizes local markets and seeks to strengthen short food circuits uh, as they can increase the incomes of food producers while maintaining a fair price for consumers. So how would you compatibilize these two perspectives from the, the view of FAO? Um, and so wouldn't this uh, entail uh, contradictory priority setting when you support uh, countries? Over to you, Maximo. Uh, thank you very much, Rob, and, and thank you all. Let me share a little bit, uh, a few slides in these five minutes that I have. First, I think it's important to, to start by saying that I don't think it's local versus global. I think it's local and global. There is no contradiction and no opposition between them. And, and let me explain why. Because essentially what we care is to resolve this problem. This is what we care today. So we have 3 billion people that cannot afford healthy diets. And we already know what it implies in terms of reducing NCDs and so on and so forth. But we have to do this taking into account that the environment has to be improved. So reduction of emissions and that we use our natural resources in the best possible way, more efficient way. So we have less resources to produce more at a cheaper level so that these people can access to healthy diets. And that's the issue. And if this combines local and global, I think that's the solution to the problem. I don't think we can argue that countries like Cape Verde, for example, that doesn't have any source of, of water for agriculture because doesn't have any river, only have oceans, uh, will be able to produce everything that it needs. It requires to import food from other countries. And this is what we are observing in the world. What we are observing in the world that global agri-food uh, value chains uh, have increased uh, and of course, uh, the trade has doubled in terms of 1995, but not only that, uh, con the COVID-19 has affected initially some issues of trade, but I will show you the latest results we have in terms of imports. Uh, but uh, the logistical problems have been resolved. Now, it's important to understand that we were talking about resilience, and, and resilience means two things. One is to minimize the risk, and the second one is to cope with the risk. And minimizing the risks has not too much to do with, with global or local. Minimizing risk means one health approach, means having more predictive power of the potential problems and trying to find tools to minimize that risk or that uncertainty. But coping with the risk is where we need to create the changes to be able to accelerate the process to resolve the problem that we have uh, on healthy diets. Now, if we look at global value chains, we know that one over one third of all agri-food exports forms part of a value chain that involves at least three countries. That's the definition of a global value chain. And they have been increasing over time. So that is what we, has been happening. And that's something that we cannot change and we shouldn't change because at the end of the line, we want to produce in the most efficient way. It doesn't make too much sense to a country stop producing cattle, which is producing extremely efficient, like New Zealand, for example, because some other country like Kenya, which is not producing efficiently, will create more emissions will replace those, those cows that New Zealand was producing. We need to find a solution to the global public good problem, which is emissions. And we need to increase efficiency in the way we produce. And that's not goes against trade. On the opposite, it enforces the importance of trade to use the resources in the most efficient, in the most efficient way. Now, this is how many countries trade more than 30, uh, many countries trade more than 35% of their food through global value chains. So this is the situation. And most of it is related to cereals, of course, is related to high value commodities like meat and fish, is less to vegetables, more to fruits, but vegetables are the ones that move the shorter distances. And that there is a reason for that. And today I know that we can produce uh, locally uh, vegetables close to cities, which is where the bigger demand it is. 
is because we can do horizontal farming and it's cost effective to do horizontal farming. So again, technology helps to for the commodities that make sense to be produced locally. And that's what Bahrain Ingen is doing and was mentioned before. But other commodities like fruits, it, because of seasonality and the weather conditions I need at different times of the year, will be impossible to do locally. And those are the ones that we need to keep trading and increasing the efficiency in the way we trade and increasing the efficiency in the way we use our, our natural resources. And this final uh, graph is just showing what happened as in the first half of the year 2019 and in the second half of the year in, in 2019, but also in the first half of the year 2020. So if we compare the first half of the year of 2019 with the first half of the year of 2020, this is an import bill that created a lot of, it was very difficult to develop, significant methodologies behind, but basically it shows that the commodities for which global trade under, underwent the highest contraction in the first half of the year of 2020 compared to the first half of the year 2019, uh, can be regarded as highly income elastic, uh, consisting of beverages, fish products, and some extent livestock products. These trade commodities called conceivably have been substituted with domestic products. But on the, all the others, if you see at the bars between the blue and the, and the gray uh, column, we are basically the same despite of COVID-19, showing the importance of the import bill of trade and showing the importance of trade right now despite of the logistical problems. So if I want to cope with the risk of a, a, a situation like COVID-19, I need to improve my logistical efficiency. And that's what we have learned. I need to diversify the sources of where I import and I can increase intra-regional trade even more. But, but that's the, the important concept behind. I think we cannot use COVID-19 as an excuse to argue that we need to move locally and that we need to move self-sufficiency. As OECD has mentioned, we know that doesn't work. And we know that I will be inefficient in the three fronts I was speaking. But also, we know that we need to increase availability of food to be able to achieve the concept of healthy diets for all. And that is a responsibility that we need to take seriously, containing and controlling for, this, for the externalities that we will create, what we call trade-offs, on the environment and on emissions in the best possible way. And trade plays a role for that. But again, it's not a substitute of local production when it is possible and when it is efficient to be able to do it locally. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, uh, Maximo, with clear overview, also to give us some numbers on the, the importance of, of trade currently and how we can connect better uh, the uh, local and uh, uh, global uh, value chains to build more resilient food system. Um, okay, but thanks to all the panelists for these um, interesting perspectives. So um, as I summarized previously, probably we see less of a controversy between local versus global. It's more a question, how can it be connected and what balance to strike between um, uh, local provisioning and the use of trade and how uh, local uh, providers uh, can connect with global value chains that are both um, uh, to their economic benefits, but particularly also for the benefit of food security and sustainable food systems. So to everybody online, so we'll move, move to the Q&A. Um, let me remind you again that you can submit your questions on ifpre.org, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, uh, or use uh, Twitter, uh, hashtag askifpre. We have a, a number of questions, so uh, uh, raise a few. Let me, um, first I just a couple of questions for uh, Robert Vrede on his presentation. Um, I'll just combine them um, for you now, so to respond to them uh, here. 
Uh, you mentioned uh, um, the term regenerative agriculture, um, uh, which um, according to um, Matthew Table of Oxford, the Swedish Agriculture University and Wageningen University, who asked this question, does the term does it mean much in itself? What policies and practices uh, would you uh, 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 indicate that would support um, that uh, the term or that concept of regenerative uh, agriculture. Maybe it's a second related question from Daniela Luz, who's um, asking, what's the basis for the business case that you made for uh, resilient agriculture and sustainable agriculture? Do you have a particular estimates that would indicate that it's uh, more beneficial uh, to um, to um, to invest in resilient agriculture and uh, sustainable food systems, I guess I can add myself. Uh, if if that's indeed such a good business case, why is it not happening all over the place? Um, so uh, let me give you first those two questions, and then we move to uh, other questions uh, addressed to uh, others. Robert, you have the floor. Yeah, thanks, Rob. <clears throat> I think with regards to the uh, the business case, um, if you look at it long term. Uh, there is probably no uh, no business if we don't get our act together here. That sounds quite dramatic, but it is, uh, I think, in the end, reality. We do need to find ways, of course, how we how we can make it happen, right? And if you're if you're looking, for instance, at how we are now driving, you know, inside of Unilever, but also uh, globally with many other other manufacturers, the case for converting from animal protein towards more plant-based protein which is still for consumers on, on many aspects, you know, they're paying a higher price for the protein intake versus if they would consume the animal products. Yeah. Um, but we're trying to then find reasons to justify that current high price. Um, and at the same time, I think we're trying very hard by building that scale to drive those prices of, let's say, uh, plant-based proteins further down to become even more competitive with, uh, with the meat products that, uh, that we see. So, it's not a moment of that you can, like a light switch, you turn it on towards, and now everything is converted. The scale is not there, but also the business case would not allow that, right? That's too high of an investment. So you need to start with converting certain consumer groups, certain markets, to then build scale, to build that ecosystem, to create that demand. And then there will be tipping points where actually because of the scale, we will then be able to also pull in, let's say, the more you know, price constrained consumers that are saying, I would like, but I don't have the money for that. So I think that's what we're doing. And you've seen that with, you know, how in the past Ben and Jerry's brands have tried to, you know, drive fair trade products, et cetera. And you see that starts small, but then gradually there's more mass coming behind it. Yeah. Um, but, it but it is definitely uh, a challenge out there. But we also know if we don't do it now, I mean, our company has, has been there for a hundred years. And if you do all the math, this is what we need to do in order to also be there 100 years from now. So that is the business case. And I think the beauty is that we call this you know, purposeful brands. And you see that actually we managed to grow faster with these brands. Yeah? But it is indeed a matter of phasing it um, rather than, uh, than flipping a light switch. In terms of regenerative agriculture, I think um, you know, I don't want to say that is the goal as such. The goal in the end is to make sure that we drive down the carbon dioxide emissions. Yeah? Um, and we see that, you know, uh, going for regenerative agriculture will help in that sense. So how do we make sure that we, you know, we stimulate biodiversity and that we don't take away more from the earth, 
uh, but actually that the earth is able to consistently provide us with that. So uh, I would not want to go too much into, you know, the, that definition discussion, but it is all about being able to, you know, to take the resources without having consequences for the generations after us and to do it in a way that we can indeed, you know, reduce the impact of carbon dioxide because that is the biggest problem that we believe that we're facing at this point of time to make sure that we also have a planet that is comfortable for all 8 billion of us to live on, you know, 10, 15 years from now. Yeah, thanks, uh, Robert. I think that's very clear. Maybe just one follow-up question to this, since um, if I'm not mistaken, ice cream is one of your big profit makers at, uh, at Unilever. So what does it mean for our Magnum ice creams? Yeah. It's good you ask. Um, we just this week, we launched uh, a new vegan Magnum ice cream, uh, Vignum, a, a, a vegan Magnum uh, salted caramel. Um, so also there you see that we are trying to, you know, to, to make sure that we've got all the offerings available and doing that in the best way possible. In the end, food is also, it has to be nutritious, but it also has to be pleasurable. So we need to make sure that we find that balance in its totality, yeah? Um, and also from a nutritional point, we don't advise people to eat the Magnum every day. But once in a while is very good. And for those that say, look, I would like to do it without the, uh, you know, the, uh, the dairy, uh, we now have vegan alternatives there. So also there we are trying to, uh, to make sure that we're driving the transition that, uh, that we need to come to a more balanced uh, uh, protein intake. Thanks, uh, thanks Robert. So we'll, <clears throat> we won't miss them in the future. That's what you're saying. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Um, Okay, um, there's a question here from uh, Mastroid Sandy, <clears throat> who asked, and maybe best, let me direct it first to, to Guido, is to what extent is agroecology agro being practiced to combat climate change and food security? And maybe more asked that question in relation to how does that concept of agroecology sit with the circular economy concept um, uh, that's promoted by the, uh, the Dutch policy? Um, <clears throat> um, well, I think that the most important thing is that uh, circular uh, agriculture, just like also agroecology, <clears throat> are ways to, to, to realize sustainable agriculture. And we have a lot of discussion also in the Netherlands, is circular economy of agriculture, is that a, is that a goal, is that a means to realize uh, a sustainable uh, uh, agriculture in a sustainable world. Of course, also in the Netherlands, we try to find some uh, some uh, some uh, different ways, different means to realize sustainable uh, agriculture. And agroecology is one form of uh, realizing that. We call it also is what we call nature inclusive uh, farming, for instance. And there are different concepts to 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 realize uh, uh, this. So yes, we we trying to stimulate that. What I mentioned in my introduction also is that uh, we are supporting from the government a lot of research, and I think it was mentioned also by Jeroen Elvers that the strong strong point of uh, uh, innovation of a necessary point is to have the right ecosystem, and the collaboration between uh, academia, the industry, and the government is crucial. And what we do is research, and the other point is also uh, having pilots. And we have different pilots, also in agroecology. And so we're trying to learn from these aspects which are uh, successful. We 
well, we try to 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 uh, uh, well to realize more in that in that field. So maybe I can uh, now I have the floor. Maybe we'll have to 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 raise one point if you allow me, uh, Rob. And I think that's what was mentioned by the different speakers, as uh, also by myself, that the challenges are really huge. And I think that Robert said we have 10 to 5, 15 years to realize that. The important thing is that we, what, what as a government also, what we are, uh, think is a dilemma is that there's a sense of urgency. On the other hand, we have to change a lot of behavior of the consumers, uh, which is mentioned, but also uh, the key players in, in, in this all of this are the farmers. And what we see in the Netherlands, but I think it's not only a typical point here in the Netherlands, we see worldwide because of the transition and what we try to realize these ambitious goals is we need also farmers, consumers on board especially the farmers, uh, it's important. And um, that's we try also to realize with the, the CAP, eh, the Common Agriculture Policy in, uh, of, of the European uh, Union, to give them the earning capacity, which is necessary to get them on board to make this transition. So uh, we're speaking a lot about challenges and that, that there's a business case for the sector, but there need also be a business case of the, the farmers. Uh, yeah, thanks, um, uh, Greta. That's very clear, and um, uh, so so we we can have uh, consistency between these these concepts uh, if we make that uh, clear, but also uh, involve the um, the various stakeholders uh, to get them aligned with uh, transformation processes. Um, let's take a few uh, further questions that have come in. Uh, maybe. Um, Here's one, maybe it, it links a little bit to your final answer to engage, uh, who to engage in this uh, conversation. Uh, maybe we can ask the, this question to uh, Maximo. There's a question from uh, Nital Jetalal, um, who asked in any sense where the C40 cities are with respect to the good food cities decoration. I'm not sure whether it's the same as the FEO, I think is also engaged with uh, the municipal agreements of uh, um, uh, food for the cities um, that uh, in some ways also focuses pretty much on uh, local supply chain. So um, is, are the goals, uh, that's the, the question here of the C40 cities uh, sufficient to reach more sustainable food systems? Maximo? Okay, so first we need to understand that uh, food and diversity of food is not only uh, vegetables and, and, and is more than vegetables, it's fruits, fish, meat, staple commodities. Uh, the city's initiative is more focused around uh, local production of, of vegetables to supply the cities and getting closer to the cities. Because as I mentioned before, if you look at the flows uh, of trade, the commodity which travel the less distances are vegetables all the other commodities travel significant distances. So again, I think it's an initiative to do that, but it goes farther than just availability of food. It looks also at sustainability and of course in making cities green, which is the objective of, of, of the Green City Initiative too. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a combination of elements that is trying to assure a, a more efficiency in production and a more efficiency in the use of, of natural resources, taking advantage of innovation and technology but again, it won't resolve all the needs of the diversity of diets that we need in the cities. 
The second point, which is important, is that uh, the problems we are facing are not only in the big cities, are also in what we call intermediate cities or hatchment areas, uh, which normally are a continuum between the rural and the urban. And normally we forget about them. And those are extremely important. It's where most of the pre-urban populations are. And those are areas where uh, we also need to feed them with diversity of diets, and we also need to bring infrastructure to improve uh, access to food. So again, it's important to look at this in a more comprehensive way. And it's important also to understand what is a private good and what is a public good. Uh, emissions will create a public good problem, an externality to the environment. Production and local use of, of resources is more focusing on a local issue, land and my soil and my water. If I am trying to resolve a public good problem, I think uh, it's more important to look into trade because that will help us to minimize those trade-offs to the public good. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Maximo. That's very clear. We have to um, put these uh, different perspectives uh, in, a, in a broader setting. Um, let's going to the local level. Is a question from Professor Stella Williams from Nigeria. Uh, maybe it's a question could uh, ask both to um, uh, to Jeroen and to Marion. She wants to reply to it. It's, it's sort of on the local level. So uh, how can we ensure that um, uh, when we develop local supply chains, also if they're connected to uh, uh, global supply chains, uh, that um, there's benefits for rural women and youth uh, as part of the transformation of the agricultural sector um, and have uh, sufficient gains from in value added. So um, for Jeroen, so how would that sit with, uh, with your business practice? So you have sp specific targets, goals to um, engage those population groups, uh, rural women and youth. And to Marion, how would you um, uh, include that additional target into um, the connection between global and uh, local value chains? Um, Jeroen? Yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah, very important question, a very important topic is that I, I, I mentioned that if you look to the dairy development activities that we do in several countries, Asia, Middle East, Africa, and Central Europe, of which Nigeria is for us a very important one, a large country, is actually that's based on three pillars. As you can see on these slides, hopefully you can see, is improved milk quality and productivity. I mentioned that before, very important. Uh, and improved rural uh, communities, build strong cooperatives and make them sustainable. But as you can see in the middle, uh, and hopefully that is an answer to your question as well, is that women and youth uh, empowerment is a very uh, important base of uh, of our dairy development programs in the, in the countries uh, I mentioned. Uh, as it mentioned here, for uh, resulting in economic empowerment of these uh, young people and uh, female farmers, but also increasing the voice of agency for them, uh, but also to create a more attractive sector for uh, for these uh, these people. Uh, and that's what we do with uh, together with uh, different partners, for example, uh, NGOs uh, in Nigeria, specifically with uh, um, uh, so supported, for example, by with uh, by the government uh, to train uh, women uh, in farming practices, but also entrepreneurial uh, skills, and to build this very sustainable uh, dairy value chain. Uh, 
So as you can see, a very important strategic pillar of uh, our dairy development program. Thanks, uh, thanks, Jeroen. Um, Marion? Yeah, you know, the, um, the questions regarding these two population groups you mentioned um, are often very well addressed by uh, local um, interventions because often the bottlenecks are of, of, more, of more local nature. I think of women. Um, there are one typical uh, problem in some countries still is access to land. They, uh, it's not always even legally possible to be owners of land. That's a problem. Um, another um, weakness women often face uh, for any type of business, including, including in agriculture, is access to networks. So the friend uh, Jeroen uh, mentioned this, giving them a voice, so assisting in creating also female networks or making sure that women participate in professional networks is important. For youth, it's uh, education that is a specific um, aspect. And here, I would like to come back to a place that was several times mentioned in this discussion, Wageningen. Uh, the Netherlands has this uh, very well-known uh, and, and very strong uh, tertiary education institution, University Wageningen, that deals with agriculture. That's very rare in the developing world. And often it's assumed that if your father is a farmer, you can be a farmer um, as a son or as a daughter. You don't need to study anything. So making sure that skills are transmitted to the young generation is important for youth. Last but not least, what both population uh, groups, women and youth have a specific problem with is access to finance. If you need to invest in your business, for instance, to make it more climate resilient, that's where they are often uh, not well positioned to speak to bankers, to speak uh, to people in the financial sector, and that's where they sometimes require assistance. Uh, thanks, Marianne and uh, Jeroen, also for those answers and how uh, we could address that uh, issue. Um, I have a question which is, um, well, first addressed to Robert, but so I suppose Robert and Jeroen to react to this. This is from Siad Irshad Shah, the Ministry of National Food Security and Research in Islamabad in Pakistan. Uh, the question is, multinational companies are working on sustainable food systems, circular economy, etc., in a developed country context, but ignoring the same approaches in developing countries. Is this due to strong regulations in developing in developed countries and why you don't do it in developing countries? So first question is, is that true from your perspective, but is it indeed the case that you feel more pressure from uh, uh, regulations your countries to do something in this direction than you see from developing countries. Uh, Robert, you first, and then Jeroen. Yeah, I don't think it's uh, there's regulations uh, that much uh, that differ. I do think it's the uh, the affordability of many of the propositions that we use to drive this transition. Yeah, um, and you see that consumers in in what we then call developed markets um, are already much more sensitive and open to uh, to include that, let's say, in the mix that they're looking for. Um, but you're right from from you know from a total you know, from a total volume perspective, we also need to make sure that we get the emerging markets on board. I think in many of the cases, how we're now trying to drive, let's say, you know, from animal protein towards more plant-based proteins, it is also more of a developed world problem. Um, you see that in many of the emerging markets, uh, animal proteins are, uh, are to a much lesser extent so significant in the diet. Um, we are doing things, if you're seeing, for instance, in Africa, how we're trying to, uh, there is a protein deficiency in, it, in its totality, um, but rather than offering meat replacers, because you know, many of these groups actually lack meat in their current diet, it's much more about how can we make sure that there's sufficient amount of protein in the diet that they consume today. So 
in many of the meals that they are eating, how can we enrich that with protein? And then, you know, ideally not using animal protein, but plant-based protein from the start. Uh, but I think the biggest factor is indeed this pricing point, and we need to get that equation right. And it's more difficult in emerging markets, uh, where it's much more sensitive and the majority is on a much lower income level than in a developed market. But in both cases, we need to get that equation right. Um, and we are driving that across. Yeah? So I think that's also there a matter of time and, uh, and innovation uh, that, uh, that will help us to further unlock. Yeah? Thanks, Robert. Uh, Jeroen? Yes, thank you. I'm, I'm not 100% sure if I understood the, the, the question correctly, but actually, if, if uh, it's a mixture, it's a mixture of, of different reasons uh, could be due to, to certain regulations, uh, but also uh, depending on a certain situation of the market, a specific needs or consumer behavior. Uh, as an example, in our case of dairy, there are certain countries where uh, there's a, a their desire for fresh-based or local produced uh, uh, dairy or products, uh, for example, could be import or tax related uh, issues uh, uh, or trade barriers, uh, but um, it could also uh, based on, on, on the availability of infrastructure or, for example, chilled-based uh, route to market uh, and infrastructure. Uh, so it, it, it varies. Uh, very depending on the situation of a certain country and the history uh, at that moment. Thank, thanks, uh, Jeroen, and, uh, and also to Robert um, for addressing that question. I've um, now two questions to Maxima, but also ask Marion to uh, uh, respond to that if she wishes to. Um, the first question is from Insa Flaxberg Bart, who um, says that she agrees. Um, 100% protectionism and trade restrictions would not be the solution to making food systems more resilient. However, trade is also not always generating the benefits it promises. Um, given global decoupling of production consumption and negative environmental impacts that often follow, what would be the appropriate policy response at the global, national, local levels? I take it's a very broad question, but maybe you can uh, uh, focus that a little bit uh, maximal. Um, there may be related to this, um, um, there's a question from Ajay Singh of uh, India, who asked, has COVID-19 increased the disparity between developing and developed uh, regions regarding the food value chain transition and how can we minimize that gap? So they're different questions, but maybe you can combine them into uh, one answer. Uh, Maximo, first you and then Marion, if you want okay. to also address yeah, Thank you very much. First, we, we all know that trade has distributional effects. No? Uh, there are people that will win more than others, and some losers will be because of distributional effects of, of, of trade. So, so we need to take that into account, and countries need to recognize that and to find solutions to those uh, potential problems. There will be always winners and losers. The important thing is to understand who are the losers and how we can help them to avoid them uh, having the negative effects of, of that. But that's thinking on a private uh, solution problem, okay? But at the end of the line, what, what I am arguing is that uh, local and global will help to improve and to resolve the problem, which is the major problem of access to healthy diets. Uh, and because we require to use our resources also in a more uh, efficient way. So if we, are, if we understand that information and, and we are able to identify those, then there are other policies that can complement, uh, but will at the same time allow us to get the benefits from, from trade. Now, 
why is this so important? Look at what is happening today. No? Uh, two weeks ago, Argentina put uh, basically a restriction to exports. Prices start to move up again. FAO index price was, was the highest, although not the highest with respect to 2007, 20% under. Uh, today, there is a lot of, of noise around uh, uh, Russia putting an export uh, tax, doubling the tax that they have today on wheat. Prices again are moving high. This is what increases inequality <laughs> because the decision of a few countries is creating a problem in the market, which is, could be affecting and could be transmitted to emerging economies and to developing and, and less developed countries. So that's again what we need to, to avoid. We need to find ways in which we can create information. We know today and AMIS have been saying all the time that we have enough supplies of food. The problem is not food availability. The problem is a problem of food access. And that's what we need to try to minimize. And that's why we need to keep pushing for the concept of facilitation of trade and going against export restrictions. Second, in terms of, of inequalities, we started in a situation with significant inequality. And of course, if you are starting a situation of significant inequality in the world, even within countries, COVID-19 has exacerbated that even more. And that's what moves us very far from what we will be able to achieve in the 2030, which is our aim. So again, inequality is crucial and we don't do too much on tackling inequality. And that's why we need to change the way we think in terms of not only focusing on SDG 1 and SDG 2, but also trying to focus on, on SDG 10, which is how we can reduce inequalities. This is the only way we will be moved out sustainably of undernourishment and of poverty. Thank you. Thank you, Maximo. Uh, Maria? Is on uh, what to, to do to, um, uh, to, to solve this very complex um, policy um, challenge. I don't, uh, I don't dare to give an easy answer to this. Uh, what I did learn uh, when we have been discussing these issues about uh, food systems is that apparently our exports continue to believe that the old uh, Tenbergen rule continues to hold. If I have three policy objectives, I need at least three policies to meet all three of them. So um, if you want to be, uh, make your farmers, make ensure farmers have incomes, that your um, inequality is not too much increased, and that uh, we are environmentally sustainable, you need to have three policy interventions that are aligned. But that's at least a rule of thumb. Um, what does that mean uh, for global issues? Some of these policies may require a collaboration across countries in order for them to be uh, sustainable and feasible within an international context. If as a country you want to remain open, but you would like to impose certain types of environmental um, product standards, for instance, then you may, and you want nevertheless to trade with other countries, at the very least, you need to have a system in place of how you certify these standards and whether you recognize these certifications or, <coughs> or not. You may even want to consider working with your partners and ensuring that they meet, in general, the same, uh, the same standards. That's something that within the European Union, a lot of effort has been put into this, work together on European rules and regulations and recognize uh, them and recognize the certification. That's one area. Same thing, if you maybe subsidize an area, uh, support it financially, that may unlevel the playing field in trade. Others may not be happy. You need to um, talk to other countries, to your partners, in order to make sure that everybody thinks the level playing field is guaranteed. So if you're open economy on some of these policies, you need to speak to your partners and collaborate at the OECD, we will always be happy to support uh, to support this. Thank you, Mario. That's very clear. Um, 
I have a fair question that I'm going to address to all of you. Um, so it's a, a controversial uh, topic in, in many countries. So it's a question from uh, Caroline Grunewald, and she's asking how can um, uh, wealthy countries, but I guess let's take all countries, uh, reform subsidies to benefit the environment and the level playing fields. And so maybe reducing subsidies and redirect them towards healthy, uh, or the current subsidies and redirect or re redirect them to healthy and sustainable foods. So let me ask first uh, to uh, Guido from a, a policy perspective, what's the position there of the Netherlands government, how to redirect the, the current subsidies, which according to OECD estimates is uh, more than $600 billion per year in support, overall support measures. Um, and then ask uh, Robert and Jeroen from a private sector perspective, uh, do these subsidies even matter for your business decisions and, and uh, what kind of incentives would help? And then to Marion and Maximo, uh, what views you would have in uh, repurposing uh, the current uh, subsidy structures uh, for the agricultural and food sector. Guido, you have the floor, the floor first uh, to address this question. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, uh, I think it's an excellent uh, question because what we are talking about uh, is that, uh, well, about uh, subsidies and government intervention. Uh, I think that important is that the challenges are so huge that we need everyone on board uh, in the cooperation between the different uh, different partners. And also subsidies is, so I would like to mention there's no silver bullet, one silver bullet, um, but I think subsidies can play a role there. And that's also the background of the new reform of the common agriculture policy is that we give uh, income support to the farmers and uh, also we give an extra incentive, the so-called ecosystems, to get more money uh, from it if you uh, invest in, 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 uh, in, uh, in uh, green agriculture and there are many things also where you can make, uh, make money of. So yes, it's. Uh, I think we need to reform the whole sy subsidy uh, uh, system, and not only for the farmers, but also it can play a role. Uh, subsidies, and on the other hand, you have also tax uh, incentives, uh, for instance. Probably, and I think we will have a new cabinet in the coming half of the year. One of the issues will be a price on meat. That could be, uh, that could be, an issue that could be helpful to change the uh, the the the, uh, the 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 role on the behavior of consumers. So I think that government in intervention in general, regulation, for instance, uh, but also a financial incentive can play a role in the transformation towards the sustainable economy in agriculture. Thanks, Rido. It's good that that's part of uh, the policy discussion and see how we can reform those policies. Uh, Robert, from yeah, I, I those subsidies. Yeah, I completely agree with Rido. I think um, you, you, we should only consider to use subsidies to stimulate something if we have a vision that, in the end, the subsidies can disappear because they have you know we have used them to allow the transformation to build the scale to test the you know the economical feasibility of something as soon as 
you know, the real scale becomes dependent on the subsidy, it will stay small because nobody has unlimited funds to constantly subsidize beautiful stuff. Yeah. So I think it should only be used to infuse something rather than a long-term kind of uh, thinking. And also, I think, you know, Fido fairly called out, actually, we see more downsides from subsidies at the moment. If you're looking at in the EU, how some animal proteins are being consistently subsidized, um, you know, that is not helping the transformation that we are requiring to do. Um, I think at this point of time, we've often see regulations, you know, for safety reasons, but actually being used to, you know, as a combination with tariffs that are prohibiting us to really, you know, make sure that we've got an efficient uh, supply chain and indeed allowing us to, let's say, see the, you know, the world as a global marketplace and to ensure that everybody is able to compete in. Um, I think that's the bigger restriction and it would be helpful if there is more common legislation um, that allows indeed, you know, farmers from across the globe to participate into that global food system and not because they are letting some sort of an approval, then suddenly, you know, they're being taken out of the marketplace. Um, and again, safety first, but I think sometimes we see that regulations are being drafted in such a way, um, you know, in combination with a tariff that it is indeed counterproductive in that sense. But subsidies, great, uh, but only for transformation and only for stuff that we really believe is necessary and not to hold on to something that does need to be converted over time um, because that's just slowing us down. Thanks, uh, Robert, uh, very clear. Yuru? Yes, well, I can only build on that. As there's, there's a saying that we use a lot is that you cannot, you cannot act green uh, whilst having a, a red banker. And, and with that, I relate very much to the smallholders and the farmers, uh, of course, in this case. So subsidies, uh, not only from uh, the public sector, but also actually from NGOs are, are very important to accelerate, facilitate initiatives. Very important that these initiatives are part of a value chain. Uh, we like very much the concept of, of microcredits. Um, and, uh, and and definitely, yes, they can accelerate the building also what on Robert is saying, uh, it should not be the goal uh, in itself. In itself, it should just fuel uh, a certain initiative and to become self-sufficient or more self-sufficient uh, or sustainable investments in, um, uh, in the environment or circularity. Thanks, uh, thank you, Jeroen. Um, uh, Marion, does OECD have a particular perspective on the current subsidies and how to repurpose them? Oh yes, we do. Subsidies really much part of my daily life. We collect uh, data on subsidies and um, or kind of economic activities. Um, we are working on subsidies for the manufacturing sector. We have been collecting data on subsidies in fisheries, fossil fuel subsidies, and agricultural subsidies. Agricultural subsidies is the area where we have been publishing data uh, for decades. We have the longest experience and maybe it's one of the most frustrating experiences um, that we have gone through because uh, unlike what Robert said, we have not seen a decline. And in, including in the type of subsidies that are trade distortive, both trade distortive and not helpful for environmental sustainability. So these bad, bad type of subsidies, um, it's, um, yeah, it's hard to understand why they continue to exist. Um, I would like to see the current COVID-19 crisis 
as an opportunity, it's going to be difficult, but we are in a situation where governments are uh, intervening uh, heavily in financial, financially in different types of markets to support um, producers, companies, including farmers, because we are in a, a difficult crisis, support is needed. We see an amount of subsidies being given that we have maybe never seen before is a good thing. We need uh, support during the crisis, but maybe if policymakers still have that time and brain space to think about how to design them in order for them to help in the transition, for them to have a long-term effect um, in order to bring us towards uh, food systems that are resilient and environmentally sustainable, that would be great. Maybe this period can be an opportunity to not support increases in production do not support um, prices, but support transition, maybe by supporting different types of logistics, supporting research and development and skills development, and supporting the move towards more environmentally friendly production methods. Thanks, uh, Marion. Uh, uh, Maximo, over to you. Your uh, thank you. So, yeah, so I, I think uh, first we need to, to agree, I think that agriculture is one of the most distorted sectors in the world. So it's a very distorted sector. So it starts with an initial condition, which is not the best one. Second, if we look at Econ 101, we know that taxes or subsidies create a welfare loss, the famous Harberger Triangle. So consumers and producers lose consumer surplus because of that. But of course, uh, there are some times that we need to use them to accelerate innovation or to accelerate things uh, like research and development and, and technologies to do new things. But they have to be temporal, as it was mentioned before. Now, if we look into the agricultural world and this distorted world, clearly, as Marion was saying, there is the issue of the true value cost of food. So taking into account the externalities and the environmental cost, the issue of, of being uh, distortive for trade uh, and the other trade-off is uh, against healthy diets. So we have all this speech of improving access to healthy diets, but most of the subsidies that we have in agriculture are towards the staples. Uh, and indirectly towards other commodities through feedstock. So, so again, uh, we need to start to look at it carefully and we need to start to assess what, what it means. And that requires simulation, that requires to simulate what will be the impacts of shifting a proportion of those subsidies from staples, for example, to commodities that will be more related to the healthy diet in design incentive that we want to put in place. We have done some of those uh, and the effects are not so bad. They are really positive in terms of access to healthy diets and improving even uh, the overall welfare. Uh, so it's Pareto, Pareto improving uh, in the current conditions and in the use of more effective uh, use. So again, uh, for me, the important thing is that we need to align incentives. So we, are, we, are, we can assume certain welfare costs and these losses uh, because of these policies of governments and regulations, but those need to be consistent with the incentive that we want to put in place. If we don't align incentives, then I think we are basically using the, mo the money in an improper way and affecting countries in an improper way and also affecting uh, the global public goods in an improper way. Thank you. Thank you, Maximo. Um, and uh, thank you all for addressing this question, which um, I allowed all of you to speak. It's a bit self-serving because uh, if we were taking also some uh, simulation scenario analysis, uh, how um, subsidies and uh, interventions in uh, food systems can be uh, repurposed, redirected to, to find uh, consistency across the uh, multiple goals that uh, we're trying to achieve. 
Um, there's uh, quite a few more questions, but uh, we have to uh, bring this to a close. So let me thank everybody who raised these uh, questions that, that gave rise to uh, some further insights, maybe not uh, a full conclusive um, set of answers to the core questions that we raised at the beginning of this seminar, but certainly uh, a lot more uh, perspective um, on how to address this question of local versus uh, local, uh, uh, global, and uh, how to balance uh, the two um, uh, parts of the uh, food system in a way that uh, serves resilience and sustainability. Um, with that, um, uh, let me uh, move to um, uh, Jo Swinnen for his closing remarks. Um, and then uh, after that, we'll wrap up the seminar. Jo, over to you. Okay, thank you very much, Rob. Uh, <laughs> Rob has been too good a moderator. He actually made the summary himself already during his interventions between the speakers. So there's not much left for me, for me to do here. Um, so I, as he said, there's a lot of consensus, I think, in, in the interventions. There is also, but still there was a lot of diversity of perspectives, I think, and of issues that have been covered. Let me just point out a few that I thought was really uh, important. One is the, the issue that local versus global is, of course, not a, a new issue. I mean, it's been around for a long time and the whole anti-global, anti-pro-globalization debate has focused on it. Um, the, the issue also of agricultural subsidies, which a lot of them have trade intervention aspects, goes back for, for decades, even centuries. But COVID-19 brought, has brought new attention to, to many of these issues. One of them has been how resilient have these local versus the global value chains been? And I think there was a lot of input on that. I also, maybe it is important to, um, between local and global, there's a, there's a big heterogeneity or a large heterogeneity, if you want. I mean, we have, when we think about local, we think about small, et cetera. But of course, a lot of the domestic supply chain are not very close. Uh, the, urban, the consumption areas are actually quite far apart from the production area. So there's a lot of steps there as well. Uh, in general, I think we got mixed answers. But one thing which came true, which has been said by several presenters, and which also comes out of, of research at IFPRI is that overall the supply chains have, if we look back over the past uh, 11 months or so, have been quite res surprisingly resilient, I would say. I mean, there's barely, clearly been a lot of disruptions early on, but based the restructuring of the supply chains, the innovations that have taken place, and they're both social innovations, organizational innovations, technological innovations, have really led to um, a fairly strong resilience of the supply of, of food, where it's much more problematic is on the demand side, where uh, the decline in incomes of, of the poor particularly, and this also relates to the point on inequality, which, which Maximo emphasized, makes that inequality has grown, particularly food inequality and food security because of incomes decline, job losses, etc. Um, now, COVID-19 may play another important role and that if we look back in 10, 15 years to uh, today, we may have seen that COVID-19 has given a shock to the system, both, I would say, the economic system, but also the political system in terms of making changes. <clears throat> and uh, if we, I mean, look back at recent shocks to the system, the, the most recent one was the food price spikes in 2008, uh, and then again, 10 and 11. Then an earlier shock was the, the food price, food safety crisis in, in Europe in the late 1990s. And both of these have triggered really important regulatory changes, and particularly the food crisis, 
shock in the late 1990s in Europe led to a whole bunch of regulatory innovations which have spread around the world under the form of food standards, regulations, non-tariff barriers, etc. And so maybe also COVID-19 will now shock the system both on the private sector level for the farmers, for the food industry, at the public policy level, and of course also at the consumption level, choices that consumers uh, have to make. <clears throat> There's been a, uh, several times references to uh, the complementarity of local and uh, global supply chains. And I'm, I'm, I'm really, uh, I, I agree with that. I think that is very much true, but it's more than complementarity in some case. I think Marion referred to the spillover effects of global supply chain of modern, or modern supply chains on local farmers, local production systems through uh, spillovers in terms of they can be the value chains can be channels of technology of knowledge of capital of inputs etc which have important local um, local supply chain or local value chain spillover effects <clears throat> then what's interesting as well we can actually use data for specific and if you go into specific commodities you can see that local uh, value chains or local production and global production and trade have actually grown together over the past 20 years. And it's interesting to see that also in, in the data and reality and what's going on, these things grow together rather than uh, basically competing each other out in, in the market. <clears throat> Finally, I think we got, uh, we, we got a premiere here uh, today in the panel that the launch of the vegan Magnum I must say, and this has major household benefits for me because both of my daughters are vegetarian and they love uh, Magnum, so they will be very pleased with, with this announcement. Uh, I think everything we heard has major implications for us at IFPRI, uh, probably also at OECD and, and FAO in terms of the research, the analysis that is taking place there, where we have to spend more, pay more attention. I mean, we're already doing it, but it's really confirming our, our initiatives there, I think on the other institutes as well to pay more attention to the interaction of all these objectives, affordability of food, sustainability, circularity, nutritious food, resilient food, okay? And so go from uh, identify trade-offs, create win-wins where they exist. So go from what Marion said, go from bad, bad to good, good, if we could possibly do this. And um, maybe coming back to the, the vegan magnum, story Rob, uh, taste of food. Maybe we should look at that as well for, because certainly the consumers look at it. So I don't know how you're gonna integrate that in your CG models with your team, but I'll leave that up to you. Thank you. Thank you, Jo. And uh, that's indeed an uh, interesting puzzle you put in front of us, but uh, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll find for sure a way to address that in our, our models as we always find a way to address new topics in our modeling uh, systems. Uh, but that aside, uh, let me thank all of you, um, um, uh, Guido Land here, uh, Robert de Vrede, uh, Jeroen Elvers, Marion Janssen, Maximo Torero, for excellent uh, interventions. Uh, uh, you addressed a lot of questions. You also raised a, quite a few new questions, and that's good for us. So we can continue our research and uh, support uh, policies and uh, market interventions uh, towards uh, what we want to achieve, the um, uh, sustainability and resilience as well as of food systems as well as keep food affordable uh, for everybody so they can uh, eat healthy um, at all times uh, in stable ways. So uh, with that, um, thanks also to the audience. Uh, I really apologize not being able to pass on all of your questions, 
but clearly this is a topic uh, that merits uh, further discussion and we'll do so uh, no doubt in our uh, policy seminar series. So with that, uh, I close this seminar. <laughs>